Drink and Read presents Dune, Part 11, pages 507 to 564. One Dune is all it takes. Hello, Paul Dunos, and welcome to the penultimate episode of Season 2 of Drink and Read. I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski, your host, and I can't wait to explore the book on my own. That's right, we're back at you this week with a fresh episode of Dune, but don't worry, and I feel like Tammy Faye when I say this, there is still time to pick up the book and read, children, please. We still got a whole week left in us. It's been a fun ride, and I would welcome you onto this train. All you need to do is purloin a book and get page flipping. And for season two, we've picked up the pace a lot. The episodes are bite-sized, and the summaries are still scintillating. But as usual, we're going to start with a slight recap on what you might have missed on the last episode of Drink and Read. First off, Thufer Hawat is reading the Baron for filth because he is what? A dumb pig. Thufer sees that the Fremen could be of use since they are a very trained military force, one that could rival or maybe succumb the Harkonnen zone. But the Baron's blatant racism is showing, saying, I don't really want to use the Fremen, I don't like them at all, and I'm kind of enslaving them. Hmm. Thufur Hawat is putting up with the stupidity because A, he's poisoned, and B, he's got revenge against Jessica, fueling the fire of his heart. There's nothing more he wants to see than this witch burn, even though she didn't do anything. Next off, Paul woke up from a two-year coma to his new son, his surroundings, and it's his time to pass his driver's test. Unfortunately, it's not a car, but a worm that he must pilot. Paul also wakes up to the news that he has a newborn sister who isn't a newborn thanks to the water of life that Jessica indulged in. Alia emerged, almost fully formed and with creepy eyes and a knowledge of the universe that a young one should not possess. Jessica shares a scene with Paul's other wife, Hera, who's, you know, not happy with her position in life, but willing to support the people that might overthrow her oppressors. Lady Jessica is living her best life as the new resident Reverend Mother, but still doesn't approve of Chani. Alia's creepy little self also overheard from the Fremen that they need a decision in the Fremen slash Stilgar situation. Who is going to lead them? And there is only one way to settle this. Usually, it's a fight for the death and there's no going against tradition. So Jessica is concerned because her boy might fall off a worm and die, or he might be killed in single combat. Needless to say, not everything is going according to plan, and the Harkonnens are going to attack at any moment. Tensions are high. And that's what you missed on Dune. Today, we might expect to settle the dispute between Paul and Stilgar and the future of the Fremen Nation, but first, it is drink and read. Jonathan, of course, we're reading, but the immortal question, what are you drinking? And, well, I'm back up to my same old bullshit, aren't I? It's another Yellowtail, or the same Yellowtail from last week, Yellowtail Pinot Grigio, because I am what? Basic. But really, after you pass your worm driving test, what more would you want to drink? At this point in my life, this Yellowtail goes down like water, so make assumptions as you will. But let's get into today's agenda, shall we? Rulon elucidates in Epigraph 41, perhaps mentioning or foreshadowing Paul versus Stilgar. 
She discusses how the topics of politics go hand in hand with orthodox religion. It's never a good thing, but it pervades everything. These two choices succumb to opportunism to challenge the system, sacrificing their ideas for something better, but they're always butting heads. And of course, we've got Stilgar, who, you know, is a bit of a traditionalist. He's the one that's been in charge. And then we've got Paul, the head of this newfangled religion that the Fremen can't get enough of. So who will come out on top in which way of life will the Fremen men choose. Place your bets now. We may be about to find out. And I'm sure Olivia Rodrigo's driver's license is playing in the background because this entire epigraph is about Paul possibly riding a sandworm. Paul is remembering both Chani and Stilgar's teaching and trying to become a dune in anticipation of the approaching sandworm. He's gonna ride a big one and he dubs this one an old man of the desert. Paul snags his hooks on the approaching sandworm and experiences a sense of euphoria so great he goes, This is life! I am emperor! But he restrains his joy, saying, Let's not get too cocky because I may still fall off of this thing and break my neck. Other Fremen latch on behind the worm and slowly Stilgar begins to work his way up to the front where Paul is. Stilgar, like every overbearing parental, automatically nags young Paul, saying, That is the sloppiest Sam wording I've ever seen. Paul on his route past some drum sand, which is uh, like collapsible sand that would swallow you up and kill them all, and says, Really, before being concerned with yourself riding the worm, you should have sent back a warning to us, because we could have been doomed if we weren't as experienced as we are. Paul, if there's one lesson we gotta teach you, it's not just about you, it's about the greater picture, all of us as a Fremen culture instead. Someone lets out an Akhaya, which is the Akuchiwa call, I assume that was used in the Denis Villeneuve adaption. And Paul, despite all the feelings of avoiding the drum sand and considering himself on only himself, is dubbed an official sand rider. He is no longer a child, and now he is allowed to go south with them. However, most of the Fremen here are tired of waiting for the Harkonnen to come to them. They wish to raid the neighboring Harkonnen camps in order to get a leg up on the competition. Paul, of course, is really missing his family, his wives, his mother, and his sister. Paul doesn't want to hear of this, and him and Stilgar continue to butt heads, not looking good in front of the other men that they are leading. He really wants to go south, and he's not backing off on this issue at all. In the South, we learn that there's going to be a gathering of leaders of the Fremen who are coming to a consensus on who will lead them. Paul still insists he wants to go South, but he sees a father figure, or, you know, a father figure that he once had in Stilgar, and remembers recalling the beauty of the South of Arrakis in his many dream prophecies. Stilgar, in a moment of comforting, goes, We are very close friends, sometimes even more than that, Paul, and I know you sometimes better than you know yourself. And it's a touching moment between Paul and a father figure because he had just lost Duke Leto. Um, they're about to dismount the sandworm when suddenly an ornithopter appears in the sky and no one knows what side it's on. The troop of Fremen scatter and hide and realize it's an unmarked thopter, probably piloted by some of those smugglers. Smugglers, eh? Who do we know that was hanging out with those smugglers? It may go deeper into the desert because things are bad on this side of the planet, but they are up for a little fight now, and they're tired of these smugglers stealing their spice melange. We're gonna bait them with a huge cache of spice, and then we're going to surprise them. Paul knows it's a choice that could go violent, but he sticks with it because that's what the majority wants to do. 
In our next epigraph, Rulon keeps it brief. When law and religion combine, one becomes less of an individual. A lot of law and religion, politics and spirituality blending together in these elucidations. It's like she's trying to hammer home a common theme and consensus that has been building up over the course of the novel. We transition to the Smuggler Spice Factory, and oh my god, it's Gurney Halleck. Haven't seen you in a while, sir. And Gurney Halleck has been pulling a Bee Gees by smuggling spice to ha, 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 stay alive, stay alive. This is a very dangerous position to be in as he's hiding out in Fremen country and their brutal went wrong. So maybe not the best choice of profession, but you gotta do what you gotta do. Gurney is making a decent business of smuggling spice. He disembarks with a few close men and suddenly the ridge explodes. Rockets are being used against them. The Fremen have ambushed Gurney's band, and Gurney is stunned to see that their leader is none other than <gasps> Paul Atreides. They said you were dead. And yet here I stand, Gurney. And you believe that this would be a happy moment of reunion between two old friends, but no, the Fremen are still intent on attacking. Friend or not, Stilgar is introduced, and it's a little odd because Gurney, despite being a smuggler and defecting instantly to Paul's side, is still referring to Paul as his duke. He is the spitting image of Duke Leto, and the rich spice was only the bait to lure them into a trap, and a sandworm is quickly approaching. Paul is not acting like his old self, he doesn't seem concerned about the men he doesn't know, nor can he save, and this is the opposite of Duke Leto in that earlier Thopter chapter, as you remember, he dropped everything to save people he didn't know. Gurney watches in amazement as the Fremen ride the sandworm as if it's a beast of burden instead of a typical giant beast. Truly, this is desert power, and Gurney feels that Paul has become a Fremen. Paul's eyes are beginning to turn blue due to the constant spice exposure, and maybe he's left that part that he once knew behind. Raban is causing a stir nearby on the prow with his Harkonnen forces, and Paul gives Gurney an offer he can't refuse. Enlist with me, Gurney. Well, there's really no other option here, and Gurney says, fine, I'll enlist with you as long as the price is right. Chani shows up and tells Paul that a wind is coming, and Paul introduces Chani to Gurney, saying, This is Chani, my wife and mother to my firstborn. Gurney gets no time to take this all in. But I imagine that he's shell-shocked. Or would it be spice-struck? News has spread that some Salusa Segundus Imperial spies off-worlders are around, and they could be Sardaukar, so it's better that we secure this cave, let the storm pass, and decide what to do with them. Paul tells Gurney about his experiences, how him and Lady Jessica have survived, and how Paul goes by many names now, Moabdeeb. Usul, breaker of chains, keeper of dragons, the works. Gurney too gets the realization that Paul is clearly the one that was predicted this entire time the Messiah. Yeah, a little late to the party, we've only got two episodes of Drink and Read left and you're finally realizing that? Yeah, but uh, welcome to the club, Gurney. Stilgar shows up and goes, hey, uh, uh, Moabdeeb, this is the guy you told me about, Gurney, right? Like one of your teachers back then. I've heard so much good of you. And Paul's like, yeah, I need you two to touch slash shake hands, though, because clearly we are all dear friends reunited and we're all one big happy family now. When are we going to sing Kumbaya and pass around the spirit stick, Paul? 
Everyone is in this underground cave, and we see that a few of the captured smugglers are actually secret Saudi car members as they suddenly attack and start fighting the Fremen in very close quarters, which is how the Saudi car prefer to fight. But the Fremen do a fine job of defending themselves, only losing a few men and managing to ambush and capture three Saudi car left standing. Paul orders the Sardaukar as the Duke of Atreides to hold. This is a new title that Paul has decided to take, but I guess he inherited anyway. Paul is speaking personally to the Sardaukar leader that they have captive, just managed to survive. This is Captain Adamsham. Captain Aramsham is in no position to barter with Paul, as Paul reveals that he could have them quickly killed by the Fremen trained forces here. To further display his power, Paul uses the voice to make the captain submit to his whim. And the captain puts up a small fight against Paul's voice, but it's no match, as one of the other Sadakar jumps out to strike the Paul or another Fremen, and is killed instantly by the captain, so Paul even has the power to turn them against one another. They are now Fremen prisoners, and Paul apologizes, saying, It's my bad that I let these guys in the first time. I didn't know they were hidden among the smugglers, but we can use this to our advantage. In fact, we're going to make these guys appear prisoners, but we're going to allow them to escape. And everyone is like, what? Why would we have that happen? Gurney wants them killed. Stilgar wants revenge. This just doesn't line up with everyone's views. Gurney is baffled, and Paul and Stilgar are about to clash so seemingly, and Stilgar is revealed to have protected Chani, his niece first, instead of Paul, and this is Paul killing out Stilgar like, well, truly, I'm your leader, so you should have protected me first. Um, the tensions are very high here. But Paul does another 180 and says, you know, that was the way things used to be, but if we start changing things now, it doesn't have to be the way things ought to be. Paul uses him and his mother, Lady Jessica, as an example of someone who can come from the outside and get a seat at the table with the rest of the Fremen, and he goes, Stilgar, if I really wanted to fight you, would I truly want to cut off my right arm and deprive the Fremen of your strength and knowledge? And it's a really cute bonding moment, like Stilgar means a lot to Paul, and I don't see them fighting at each other's throats, really breaking the conventions that the Fremen have set up for us. In this way, the fight and bloody internal power shift is avoided in the Fremen culture, and Paul does another surprise. He goes, I really want to go south to see my mother, my kid, etc. But I think we're going to bring the fight to the Harkonnens now. We've waited long enough. We're going to use these escaped prisoners to track them back to the source. Paul asks Shani to deliver word to his mother that Stilgar has acknowledged him as the Duke of Arrakis. And we will find a way to change this Fremen power structure without shedding blood. Return with this information to my mother. And Chani's like, well, fine, I guess. Gurney is just sitting there eating popcorn on the sidelines, and he's getting reveal after reveal. He hears the news that Duncan Idaho saved the two and supposedly died in the process. And Gurney has sworn vengeance against Jessica even though he has heard that Jessica is innocent and is still convinced that she has betrayed the family. Him and Thufur need to get themselves a room. Like, clearly Lady Jessica hasn't made it this far without betra like with betraying the family. Like, get your facts first. 
And Gurney is just basking in Paul's power. He didn't even have to draw a knife in this situation, yet legends will say that he slew 20 Sardaukar single-handedly. And Gurney hopes to reveal this information about Lady Jessica to Paul and change the story. But I don't think that's going to happen, Gurney. We know that Lady Jessica is innocent, but you never know. Maybe Paul will turn against his mother. In our next Arulon elucidation, Arulon states that men rage and deny with their intuition and common sense is telling them, and to that I say true. One main cardinal rule on this podcast is you mad or shortened, um, men are dumb. We are in a Fremen assembly chamber where the discussion of Fremen society without bloodshed or violence to promote the new successor of said Fremen society is underway. Lady Jessica arrives being the newly appointed religious figurehead and notices that Paul has not used the captured thopters in the Fremen cause yet, which strikes her as odd because these thopters are quite powerful. And then she does a double take. She's like, is that Gurney? I thought that bee was dead. Yeah, it's Gurney, and she doesn't really give him another thought. She's like, oh, well, that's nice that he's alive, Paul's old friend slash mentor. And it's odd that Gurney has done nothing but think about Jessica and how she has wronged him. But the main thought that comes up in Lady Jessica's mind is with Gurney, maybe Paul is going to choose him over Stilgar, and she doesn't want to get rid of Stilgar because there may be some love, feelings, and appreciation there. She heads to her boy through silence because everyone's in awe that she is the new Reverend Mother. And the crowd doesn't really feel jealousy for these two because they know that prophets usually die violent, horrible deaths. The crowd does some egging on on Paul, calling out Stilgar, like, what are we gonna do about him? Are you gonna fight him or not? And Paul snaps at the crowd and kind of shifts to see how this succession will play out. And Jessica surreptitiously slips Paul a message cylinder, detailing that Raban has been abandoned here on Arrakis with no help to come and aid him. This, dear readers, if you may recall, is part of the Baron's plan to secede Raban with Fayed Rawitha. Paul is resolute that he will not challenge and or kill Stilgar, and that ways can change for the Fremen, all they need do is allow it. He asks the Fremen, isn't this for the benefit of the entire tribe, and who really rules the Fremen aside from themselves? Jessica is in the corner sweating bullets saying, if Paul says one wrong thing, then both our heads are going to be on the chopping block, so please, please, Paul, watch your tongue. Paul shifts the Fremen mind thing to overthrowing Raban, suggesting, like, why would he kill Stilgar? Would you destroy your best knife before a battle? And unbeknownst to most, Paul is using logic and the power of his voice to control the minds of the Fremen, but it's noticeable that he's doing it in two different ways. Luckily for Jessica and Paul, this actually does seem to work with the Fremen, and they say that's a fine idea, we're gonna fight the Conqueror before we really address this, and we're open to the ideas of new succession. Jessica feels that Paul has done the right thing, and asks Gurney to come to her later, as she reminisces about the good times back on Caladan, and in anticipation of some good coffee service to share. We see that time away from Paul has given Jessica room to think over Chani, and she's still going back and forth whether she is the right woman for her son. On one hand, as long as Chani is alive, Paul will never truly see his own duty, and on the other, this is a loving relationship that seems to make both of them happy, but should emotions take priority over this time of war. Oh, sorry, I missed a big part. So Stilgar is asked to kneel before Paul, and Paul basically knights him in a new way forward for the Fremen society. 
he pulls out his Chris knife and says, kiss the blade in front of everyone. And everyone is like, oh, wow, what a leader. And this is another perfect matchup for the prophecy. Stilgar is to lead the Fremen and Paul is to command them. We need a council gathering before we achieve victory. And let's talk to the council of leaders just to make sure. And then we get Jessica's like internal monologue on what Chani means to Paul. So Jessica's alone, thinking to herself, sipping some coffee, and Gurney Halleck enters the room, but Gurney has a knife positioned at Jessica's back. He plans to kill her for her betrayal that she never really committed. Paul walks in, and instead of flying off the handle, he acts like this is just a normal Tuesday evening and demands an explanation. Gurney, why do you have a knife pointed at my mom? And Gurney goes on this whole monologue where it's his duty to seek revenge against the betrayer of his father and family. And Jessica is like, lol, isn't this ironic? I didn't do any of that. <laughs> Paul, showing that he can handle these situations better than me, calmly explains that Yue was the traitor the whole time. He had his conditioning removed and he was uh, using the Harkonnens both as a source to get his own revenge and a shield for protection for doing this naughty thing. As to that note that vaguely hinted that Jessica was the betrayer, it was just a trick sent by the Harkonnens to try and fool him into this exact scenario. Gurney's not buying it, so Paul has to turn on the voice and commands Gurney to forgive Jessica for doing no wrong. He had his doubts as well, but I mean, after time with his mother, those doubts have been erased. Gurney can't help but see Duke Leto in the young Paul in the way that he handles this situation with calmness and cool, and he is an excellent judge of any character, so perhaps Gurney was too quick to judge. Jessica breaks down and feels genuine emotion for her son and lost husband at this moment, being that, you know, her life was in danger, this whole situation was happening, and that she was blamed in the first place despite loving them both so much, in her own way. And this was a great therapy session in the long run of things because Gurney lets go of Jessica in a symbol of apology. Jessica realizes that she manipulated Paul his entire life and advises him to choose his own path now. Wow, if that didn't happen, maybe this great moment wouldn't have happened instead. She wants Paul to do what makes him happy. But Gurney, in a move similar to what we saw before, asked to be killed for even doubting Paul for a second, and Paul is just like, no, Gurney, I'm not gonna do that. Jessica says, that's all bygones, let the past be in the past, so you tried to kill me. Who hasn't at this point in the book? And, you know, she denies the transgressions against her, and I put down, is this family not toxic for a change? Wow, maybe things really are looking up. Yes, Gurney, the past is all in the past. This is just a misunderstanding between friends. Now, why don't you play us a spirited song, would you? And Jessica is just tired of dealing with these assassination attempts. She wants the drama to be done. So the song has a lot to do with nature, wealth, love. But we're all human at the core of it, aren't we? And I put down, as is traditional, that this song is a banger in the respect of the book. Having melted some icy hearts with a cool tropical breeze, Paul steps out and is informed that the leaders of the council are already arriving to make the big decision. This is much sooner than expected. And as Paul is walking on, he learns that baby sandworms, once drowned, produce the water of life. So we get a factor where that comes from. Next, Paul gets a little idea in his head saying, if my mom could handle the water of life and she inherited all those powers for the betterment of her and the new culture she supports, 
Then what would happen if I took a sip of the water of life? I must see the truth, and I'm intent on taking the water of life as well. This is the only way that I could truly prove that I am the Kwisatz Haderach by taking the same test as my mother did, and hooray, another test. I hope that this doesn't result in disastrous consequences for everyone as we're so near the end of the novel. Luckily for us, Rulon answers this question immediately, so we will no longer need to wait in the next and final epigraph of this penultimate episode. We find out that Paul took the water of life and lay as if one who was dead. He traveled through time and death, and the prophecy came even truer, as Paul was one who was both dead and alive at the same time. So here, Paul goes into his magical spice coma. And for once in this novel, we get an extremely Chani-focused chapter. We love Chani. Chani has been summoned up from the south and is alone with her escort for a moment, just taking in the beauty of the Arrakis area. She is confused on being instructed to leave as she was supposed to spend her time protecting the children, raising them and rearing them. And she's happy, though, to have a reunion with Paul, who... She is concerned about, but she doesn't see him as a messiah, she just sees him as Paul. One of her retinue by the name of Othiem ushers her into the Cave of Birds to avoid detection, and here we find out that Jessica has been waiting for Chani, struggling to tell her the news on how Paul took the water of life and is now in an unwakeable coma in between life and death. Very tough news to break to your daughter-in-law. Also, we find out that Chani left their firstborn son and Alia back in the south. Before they get to the important matters, though, they begin small-talking about the things that are happening on Arrakis, news on the battles that the Fremen are fighting in are on the up-and-up, they seem to be doing a good job, and Jessica is essentially setting Chani up for the heavy news. So Paul, my son, your beloved, took the water of life and is on an unwakeable coma, so that's why we brought you here in hopes of waking him up. Jessica doesn't know it's the water of life that Paul took and thinks it's some sort of untraceable poison, and the only one with hopes of waking Paul up would be the one he's closest to, Chani. One thought that crossed her mind was, could it be Gurney? But she put that aside, they had their cute moment, the last epigraph, but Paul is taking a death-like nap. It's nice to see Chani and Jessica bond further over their love for Paul, and Chani responds that he is alive, in quotes. He's been like that for three weeks, and he doesn't need to appear to need food, and all his body systems have slowed down, making them almost unnoticeable. It's almost as if he's one trapped in between times. The Fadekin believe that Paul is in some sort of trance-like state, where he's in tuning to his mystical powers within and shouldn't be disturbed. While there aren't many clues, the major one points to the spice melange being the culprit, as Paul smells strongly of it. Has Paul's body rebelled strongly against the spice? These are common Caucasian questions to ask. They have analyzed Paul's blood and realized that his blood has become that similar to adapted Fremen blood, even though Paul hasn't really been taking part in the Maker Water pre-post battle bacchanals that occur. Chani, being the only one with a clear head on her shoulders, asks for some raw water of the Maker to put her theory to the test. Chani is putting two and two together, and what's better for Paul than a little bit of the hair of the dog that bit him? Chani gives him a drop, and this gets an immediate response from Paul. He snaps awake just after a tiny sip of that go-go juice. Where he reveals that he only had one drop of the Water of Life, and that knocked him out for three weeks. If that ain't me with whiskey, though, right? <laughs> 
And Paul, for being comatose for three weeks, is just vibing. He saw many things, and he's filled with confidence. And the ladies surrounding Paul are like, a moment for you is three weeks for us, buddy, so um, let's get our act together, shall we? And the small dosage of the Water of Life has bonded Paul further with Jessica, and he knows there are some things she has seen in her infinite knowledge that he does not possess and demands that she reveal the secrets to him. He uses his newfound psychic connections to intune himself with the Reverend Mother, his mother, and he winds up in a region described as the wind-blowing white shapes and darkness. Jessica, in experiencing this connection, finally realizes that her son is the Kwisatz Heterok without a doubt. Yeah, this is about the thousandth time that this has happened in the novel. Finally, we have two epigraphs left, and you've made that connection. Way to go, Lady Jessica, but we love you. Throw in some shade at the males of the species, it's then described that women deal with the almighty truth and knowing the infinite span of the cosmos much better than men. Women are cautious and sense that the danger of knowing the unknown is present at all times. They see this knowing as a peril, aka don't mess with things you can't comprehend, whereas Paul doesn't see peril but possibility. Othiem is listening at the door, and we realize that this story is going to spread throughout the Fremen and throughout the cosmos. Paul hasn't seen the future, but in fact he's seen the present in all its scope. He knows the reasons have been pausing for an attack is that the Emperor has the Harkonnens, his soldiers, and the guild ships above the planet readying themselves for a full-out assault on the Fremen. Uh-oh. Also present is Thufur Hawat, so he can get to the real specifics as who's standing with the Harkonnens and the rest in space above them. Or around them, that's how space works. <laughs> All these forces are waiting for is an order from the guild to land, and Paul reveals the truth. The guild hasn't been protecting us. They've been setting us up to be robbed in order of the Harkonnens and the Emperor's wishes. Paul sees that the rest of the universe only sees Arrakis as good for one thing, Spice Melange. So what would happen if he destroyed the Spice Melange as he was cosmic surfing in his coma? He came across the conclusion that while there is a water of life, there can also be a water of death which kills off all the sandworms and thus the spice trade. This is very blasphemous as the sandworms are seen as holy protectors for the planet Arrakis and the Fremen, but Paul senses that there's nothing else he can do and he isn't backing down now, so he demands Chani and Lady Jessica prepare this water of death in case things take a turn there. And then, as a menacing conclusion for today's episode, Paul sees that all paths lead to darkness, and he can't fully comprehend what's going to happen in any of these timelines for once. Oh boy, cliffhangers of cliffhangers. A lot of loose threads that will get tied up somewhat neatly in the final two epigraphs of next week's episode. If you want to continue reading with us for this exciting conclusion, your homework is as follows. Pages 565 to the end of Dune. Next time on our season two finale, some teases as to what to expect. Stilgar, Gurney, and Paul will take their battle to the Harkonnens and the Emperor himself. Alia will have a chance meeting with her grandfather? Great-grandfather? I don't know how this works, it's all very strange. Thufur Hawat will finally decide where his true allegiance lies. And we've been hyping it up for the entire novel. We're finally going to see Paul Atreides versus Fayad Rawatha. 
Who will win? Two will enter, but only one will leave. You'll have to tune in next time to find out. And as I often do, I want to thank you for the support. Drink and read wouldn't be possible without listeners like you. If you like what you hear, remember to follow me, Jonathan Kwiatkowski, on social media platforms. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, Losing My Mind JK, Drink and Read JK, Switch That, Reverse That. And if you like my voice and my podcasting in general, feel free to check out my other two podcasts, including Nightcaps at the Theater, where me and a couple buddies get a little drizzy drunk and watch some movies. And then if anime is more of your forte, me and fellow co-host Dan Ryan host Anime Was Not a Mistake. We'd be welcome for any of your company there. I don't know about you, but this adventure is seemingly over before it has even started. My, doesn't time fly on the back of a sandworm? Well, I've got to get my popcorn popped and sprinkle a little spice melange on top for this spicy finale. But before I go, remember these two things as always. Do not fear as it is the mind killer. And remember to drink and read responsibly. Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Pocket Cast, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on drinkandreadpod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.